So Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold, jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of the creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit have offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of the will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect when the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. 
Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hi everyone, my name is Kim. It's lovely to be with you. Um, it would be helpful to have Hebrews 9 open um, so you can check to see what I'm saying is right. So, how do you react when you've done something wrong? I'm not talking about when you've made a little mistake, like accidentally leaving, uh, locking yourself outside of your house and calling your parents to come over and then figuring out that the keys are actually in your jacket pocket as your parents give you the spare key. It's a true story. I mean when you've done something seriously wrong, something that makes you feel guilty and ashamed that you wouldn't want anyone to know about. Something that makes you feel dirty, almost defiled. It might be that you've hurt someone. Maybe you've said something that you shouldn't have. You've pushed the envelope too far. You've betrayed someone else's trust, doing relational and emotional damage. Maybe you did something that you shouldn't have and you just can't shake the situation replaying over and over again. I think we all have different reactions to when we feel this way. Um, We might go for a, a shower thinking that the hot water might cleanse us from that dirty feeling or we might try and build a brick wall of good deeds hoping that the more bricks we use, the bigger our wall and the less likely people can you know, peer in to our, uh, into our hearts and see its darkness. We might try and distract ourselves from what we've done. We convince ourselves that what we've done isn't so bad. How do you react when you do something wrong? In the letter to the Hebrews, the, um, the writer is writing to a bunch of people uh, who are looking to move away from Jesus. They used to be keen Christians, uh, people who had accepted the message about Jesus with joy, but time has worn them down. Their hardships, their situation has pushed them to the edge of throwing in the towel with Jesus and giving him up altogether. And in this passage which Joe read for us, the writer zeroes in into how Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. And the way that he does that is by comparing Jesus' sacrifice with the old tabernacle sacrifices that were given to the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. And it will show us three things. It will show us that the problem it will show us the problem with the old sacrifices, then Christ's perfect sacrifice, and finally how we're to draw near and hold on. So let's look at Hebrews 9 together, shall we? 
the problem with the old sacrifices. So from verses 1 to 10, we find there's a problem with the old tabernacle sacrifices. Now, these sacrifices took place at the tabernacle. Now, if you remember from our time in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle was the way that God dwelled with his people. It was one of the the climaxes of the redemptive story. God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt to be his people, carrying them on eagles' wings to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests that would bring blessing to the nations around them. And now he finally dwelled with them in the tabernacle as a kind of concrete way of showing that uh, the Israelites were his people. But to have a holy, righteous God dwell with you is dangerous, especially if you are unholy, unrighteous, and sinful, which the Israelites were. God's holiness is so fierce, it's like drawing too close to the sun. Without any protection, you'll be destroyed. And so the Israelites would sacrifice animals at the tabernacle when they were ceremonially unclean before God or when they had sinned against God. And now we get an inside look at the tabernacle in verses 1 to 7. It kind of looks like this. It's like, kind of like a massive tent with two rooms, an outer room, and then you have an inner room. Now, in the outer room, there's the lampstand and the consecrated bread, but it's the inner room that we focus on. The inner room was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which contained all the objects that reminded the Israelites of their special relationship that they had with God. It was God's throne room on earth, the very place he dwelt. And this inner sanctuary was shielded by a curtain. Now, if you were a normal Israelite, you could never go into the most holy place. Even if you were a priest, you could never go into the most holy place. You only went to the outer room where the lamp and the consecrated bread were. It was only if you were the high priest could you go into the most holy place. But you couldn't just walk in whenever you wanted. You had to approach God in the right way or you would die. Verse 7 says you had to be prepared. You could only go in at a special time. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and never without blood, because you had to sacrifice for your own sins first and then for the unintentional sins of the people. And so in verse 8, the writer says the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. It wasn't open. Everyone but one could access it. And if you did, it was only once a year. But then why wasn't the most holy place like why was the most holy why was the most holy place closed? Why wasn't it open? Well, the writer tells us in verses 9 and 10. Why don't you have a look at it with me? This, the tabernacle, is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. 
the most holy place was closed because the sacrifices weren't good enough. That was the problem. They only dealt with food and drink and various ceremonial washings. That is, they were just, they were just symbols. Just kind of like how a wedding ring is a symbol of being married, but if you wear one by itself, it doesn't make you married. The sacrifices were symbolic of what was needed for sin to be dealt with. They themselves could not deal with sin. You see, sin is rebelling against God, the one who made us, and telling him that we know better, that we can do things our way and not his way. And how can animal's blood be enough to pay for such evil? It can't, right? Sin can't be dealt with just using the blood of a lamb or a goat, any more than trying to pay a ransom off with monopoly money. It doesn't work. These sacrifices were only symbols pointing to a greater reality to come. To use the next chapter in Hebrews 10 verse 1, they were only a shadow of the realities, not the realities themselves. But if the sacrifices weren't good enough to deal with sin it meant our consciences couldn't be cleansed. And we all know what it's like to have a tainted conscience, don't we? We've done something we shouldn't have, or we've hurt someone in the process. Our conscience reminds us of what we've done, where we've failed. That's how conscience works. It's the same if you're an Israelite. If if you've sinned against God, your conscience condemns you It reminds you, prods you, that you've done something wrong. You feel guilty. It eats away at you. And because of your guilt and your shame during that time, you would go to the tabernacle with the right sacrifice. You would lay your hands on it, and then you would kill it. And as the blood is spilling on the table, the priest takes some of the blood, goes to the altar, and uses it, and you are declared clean. Your sin is paid for. But you know it's only a matter of time until you have to go to the tabernacle again. Because you'll sin again. And so rather than feeling the joy of going to the tabernacle, of drawing near to God, you feel guilty every time you go. Because you're reminded of what you've done. Like on a work site where they have a sign counting how many days since the last accident. You have a sign in your room counting how many days since you visited the tabernacle. Your conscience is still tainted, do you see? Despite the sacrifices, your conscience cannot be cleansed because it cannot deal with sin. And so you keep your distance from God. You dread the moment you have to draw near to him. And we're a, bit, we're a bit like the Israelites, aren't we? We've said things we shouldn't have, or maybe we've done things we shouldn't have. We've, we've used pornography in the secret of our room. Or because of our fear of self-preservation, we turn a blind eye to a person in need. And so when we realise what we have done, we acutely feel our guilt and shame, don't we? Rather than going to the tabernacle, we might do other things to try and cleanse our consciences. We'll we'll take a shower, we'll 
build that wall of good deeds, will suppress our conscience, distracting ourselves with other things. But none of them work, do they? We might get even really good at looking as if we have everything together, everything worked out, appearing normal on the outside, but it doesn't change the fact that on the inside we still feel guilty. And so we keep our distance from God. Like the Israelites, in a way, we dread the moment when we draw near to him. So the problem of the old sacrifices is that they weren't good enough. They couldn't deal with sin because they were only a symbol of what it was going to take to deal with sin. They were a shadow of the realities, not the realities themselves, and they couldn't cleanse a guilty conscience. At best, they only reminded you of what you needed, that you needed cleansing before God. But Christ's perfect sacrifice is not like the old sacrifices at the tabernacle. His sacrifice is not a shadow of the reality. It is the reality. It's everything the sacrifices were pointing to. Christ's sacrifice is perfect because Christ goes through the better and true tabernacle and he uses better blood. So let's look at those, both of those now. Firstly, he goes through the better and true tabernacle. Have a look at verse 11 with me. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not, is not part of this creation. You see, the tabernacle on earth is only a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. It's not the real thing. So, for example, um, my brother-in-law is really into Lego. He, he really likes the, um, the Lego architecture sets, the ones that are based on famous buildings. And so if you go into his room, you'll see a selection of all those sets in his room. And he's got ones like the, Eif- the Eiffel Tower, the Tower of London, and the Sydney Opera House. And they're all quite cool. Like, you can pick them up, you have a look at them. They're very intricate. Um, and they give you a taste as to what it would be like to see the real thing. But they're not the real thing, aren't they? They're just models. Seeing the Lego Eiffel Tower doesn't compare with actually going to Paris and seeing the real Eiffel Tower in person. The model is inferior to the real thing. And the earthly tabernacle is just like that. It's a Lego model based on the greater tabernacle, the true one made by humans, the one made by God. And so when Jesus comes as our high priest, he doesn't go through the earthly tabernacle, this model made by humans. He goes through the glorious and true tabernacle, the one made by God. Look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus enters heaven itself. Can you imagine that? Heaven itself. The place where God dwells in all his splendor and glory. 
the true, most holy place. He goes into the throne room in heaven where he appears for us in God's presence. Christ goes to the better and true tabernacle. Secondly, Christ uses better blood. He doesn't go into heaven itself using the blood of animals that could never take away sin. He uses something better. He uses his own blood. Look at verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, that's in heaven, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. You see, the blood of animals used by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, they couldn't deal with sin. In verse 13, these sacrifices, they only made you outwardly clean. But Jesus' sacrifice is not like that. Jesus, the Son of God, offers his own blood to deal with our sin. He offers it once for all, once for all his people, for all time, past, present, future. And he doesn't repeat it every year because it's finished. Sin is dealt with. And in case we can't believe it, look at verse 26. But Christ has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's a definitive moment in history. Christ dealing with our sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if sin is dealt with, then our consciences are cleansed. Look at verse 13 to 14. If the blood of animals couldn't take away sin, but could make us outwardly clean, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we can serve the living God. Do you see what he's saying? These old sacrifices, as imperfect as they were, still had some effect. They could cleanse you outwardly, making you ceremonially clean. Now, if the imperfect sacrifices could do that, Can you imagine what the perfect sacrifice will do? In fact, we don't even have to imagine it. It's written right there in verse 14, isn't it? That Jesus' perfect sacrifice cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. That is, our sinful acts. He deals with sin definitively, completely, objectively, so that our consciences which were tainted with the knowledge of the things we had said and done as sinners could be done away with. It's all been paid for by Jesus. But even as Christians, sometimes we don't feel our conscience is cleansed. In fact, we might feel the total opposite. We acutely feel the guilt and shame of the things we have said and done. Maybe that's true for you right now. Your mind is replaying a situation over and over again. And you feel the guilt right in your guts. You're frantically trying to look like you've got everything together, but the reality is it's anything but. 
You're afraid. Afraid of people finding out what you're really like. Afraid of approaching God because you're unsure as to whether God will accept you. But friends, listen to what this passage is saying. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. He is the Son of God. He has gone into heaven itself, right into God's throne room, as our high priest, with his own blood, and he's dealt with our sin there, once for all. And now he's there in God's presence, appearing for us, for his people. If I approach God, will he throw me out because of my sin? Of course not. Jesus has dealt with my sin completely. He dealt with it 2,000 years ago and is still sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Will God reverse what Jesus has done? Of course not. He's, going, he's not going to throw out his son out of, the, out of his throne room in heaven. Friends, whether we feel this truth or not doesn't make it any less true. We are free. We're free from our sin and our guilt so that we can serve the living God. We have nothing to fear. There's nothing else we need to do because Christ has done it all. If Jesus' sacrifice is perfect because he's entered the better and true tabernacle and he's used his own blood to completely deal with our sin, then I think it means two things for us. I think it means that we can draw near and we can hold on. Firstly, draw near. We're not like the Israelites who would dread drawing near to God by going to the tabernacle because it reminded them of their sins. Because our sin has been dealt with by Jesus. So draw near to God. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. It's made a way for us to approach God with confidence. And this is great news in dark times, especially when we sin, when we feel dirty, guilty, and ashamed. In this moment, because of Jesus, we can approach God, the throne, his throne in heaven, and find grace and mercy in our time of need. And we will not be turned away. But it also means we don't need to have everything together in order to approach God. We can come to him as we are. We don't need to try and clean up our act before we come to God because Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. We can't add anything to it. We can only rest in how good and complete it is. So draw near to God. Secondly, hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Keep following him as your king. Because Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. You'd be crazy to throw it away, wouldn't you? You'd be crazy to move away from Jesus, thinking that something else will bring us closer to God, or there's another way to cleanse our sin and guilt. There is no other way. We can only approach God through Jesus' work. But also in verse 28, keep holding on to Christ because he's going to return. 
While Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him, for his people. So keep holding on to Jesus. Don't let your grip on him slip away because he will return to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Friends, do you know this glorious truth? That Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. That it deals with our sin. It cleanses our consciences. Do you know this in your heart? Because this truth brings freedom, especially in times when we sin. Freedom to draw near to God, to hold on to Jesus. Freedom to serve the living God, not out of guilt, but out of marvellous joy. Friends, do you know this truth? Amen.